This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also gotomeeting.com, green technology helping to reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Counterspend, The Young Turks, Slate.com, This American Life, The Onion Radio News, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann with a bonus clip for our iTunes app users from the Tom Hartman program. Here's your first quote. Break out the champagne. It's over. That was Kevin Spack of Newser.com. He was celebrating, maybe ironically, some great economic news. What is now officially over? The recession? Yes, exactly right. The recession. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I know. It's great, everybody. Great news. The recession ended last year, or so says the National Bureau of Economic Research which apparently gets to decide these things. So, stop your whining. (laughs) You can't say anymore, it's the economy, stupid. Now, it's you, stupid. (laughs) The fact that an obscure group of experts gets to make these determinations that have no bearing in reality explains a lot. These presumably are the same guys who also determined that the Dallas Cowboys are America's team. (laughs) Sandra Bullock is America's sweetheart. And beef is what's for dinner. How did they keep this secret for so long? I know, well, with, they the, with the internet, everything gets out these days so quickly. They didn't want people to get overly excited. Right. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's all good news. Of course, the recession being over. Not entirely, though. You can't use the recession as an excuse anymore, you slackers. No more, the recession ate my homework. No more, not tonight, honey. Consumer spending is soft. I... I can't believe I slept through the end of the recession. I blame Ambien. Yeah. <laughs> Someday our kids would say, where were you when the recession ended? And we're like, we didn't know. <laughs> Nobody told us. I did like the picture of the guy in Times Square kissing the nurse, though. That, that, was, was, really, that was very cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just wanted health care. Always have to steal my kisses from you. 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 Now I love to feel that warm southern rain. Just to hear it fall is the sweetest sound of thing. And to see it fall on your simple country dress. Fly heaven to me, I must confess. Cause I always have to steal my kisses from you I always have to steal my kisses from you When the White House announced that Lawrence Summers would be stepping down as Obama's chief economic advisor, the New York Times and Washington Post had very similar takes. The Times' Cheryl Gay Stolberg wrote that the news, quote, set off speculation that Mr. Obama would replace him with a corporate executive to counter the impression that he is anti-business, close quote. The Post's Lori Montgomery likewise reported that, quote, the White House is considering whether to choose a candidate who could blunt criticism that the administration administration has been anti-business, such as a corporate chieftain or prominent investor, close quote. The suggestions that Larry Summers represents an anti-business strain in economic thinking is kind of bizarre. Prior to joining the administration, he was a managing director at D.E. Shaw, a gigantic hedge fund that paid him $5.2 million in 2008. In the same year, he collected $2.7 million in consulting fees from other financial firms, including Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Lehman Brothers, and Merrill Lynch. Clearly, Wall Street didn't detect too much anti-business attitude. It's not like Larry Summers' Wall Street ties are a secret. Just the day before these articles appeared, a New York Times blog recalled how much money he'd made there and noted accurately that Summers, quote, has often been criticized for his close ties to the financial sector and dubbed a conduit for Wall Street to influence the White House, close quote. Seems like the blog, Deal Book, is presumed to be read by financial insiders, and so it can report honestly on such connections. When you're writing for the front section of of the print edition, though, you have to maintain the pretense that the only criticisms of Summers should come from the right. Last night I had a dream we were inseparably in 
intertwined Like a piece of rope made out of two pieces of vine Held together holding each other with no one else in mind Like two atoms in a molecule inseparably combined Tragic event, I must admit, but let's not be overblown I'm not trying to write a love song, that's a sympathetic mode And maybe I just need a change, maybe I just need a new cologne Some Republican leaders in Congress don't seem to have learned any lessons from the past few years They're pushing to make privatizing Social Security a key part of their legislative agenda If they win a majority in Congress this fall that agenda is wrong for seniors, it's wrong for America, and I won't let it happen. Not while I'm president. I'll fight with everything I've got to stop those who would gamble your Social Security on Wall Street. Because you shouldn't be worried that a sudden downturn in the stock market will put all you've worked so hard for, all you've earned, at risk. President Obama came out swinging this weekend, as you just saw, on Social Security. But in spite of his insistence that the 75-year-old program is here to stay, Panic mode is set in about his about its alleged insolvency. The Deficit Commission will likely recommend cuts to Social Security. And Republicans like House Mi Minority Leader John Boehner and Indiana Congressman Mike Pence are talking about raising the retirement age. Other Republicans are still on the privatization bandwagon, but the so-called financial problem of Social Security, sec Social Security is one big giant lie. Let me prove it to you. Did you know that Social Security actually has a $2.5 trillion surplus right now? How come nobody ever talks about that? It will pay out 100% of benefits with zero problems until 2037. Does that sound like something we should panic over now? And the critics claim that, well, it, it goes insolvent 27 years from now. That's also not true at all. Social Security can still pay 78% of its benefits indefinitely after that. That's a small problem, not the bankruptcy of the system that they're peddling. So why are they pushing this lie? Because they already spent the $2.5 trillion on tax cuts for the rich and endless wars. You put your money into that retirement fund, but now they don't want to pay you. Because they already spent your money, which they weren't supposed to touch. Look, let me tell you this in no uncertain terms. They're coming for your Social Security. Don't let them do that under any circumstance, whether it's the Republicans who've always wanted to kill it or President Obama's deficit commission. They're both lying. Don't believe the hype. If you're like most Americans, you're dreading the idea of traveling to be with those you love this holiday season, knowing that this time spent watching your children form memories that will last a lifetime is keeping you from the important sales presentations that really matter. With GoToMeeting, you can give an engaging presentation by showing your desktop via the internet to clients and colleagues. The software installs quickly and is so easy and effective that your meeting will be wrapped up before the tryptophan has a chance to take effect. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST to try unlimited meetings for 45 days. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code PODCAST for this special free 45-day trial. Today's story is called The Republican Spending Addiction. Even if the GOP believed in its pledge to America, it wouldn't touch the biggest parts of the federal budget. And it's written by James Ledbetter. In a speech in June, George W. Bush said his biggest disappointment as president was the failure to reform Social Security. This remark puzzled some observers, who plausibly offer the 1,500 people who died during the Katrina aftermath, or wrecking the nation's economy as competitive alternatives. But Bush's enduring concern with Social Security speaks to a schism on the right that cannot be plastered over by the homilies of the Pledge to America released last week. And that is, everyone says that the burning political issue of this election is government spending. Opposition to spending is the scalding water that fuels the Tea Party, and so the Republicans, who controlled Congress for more than half of the last decade, now say that the GOP lost our way on spending during the Bush presidency. But what do Republicans plan to do about government spending that they favor, or indeed created? If they once were lost, have they now been found? 
If you really think that the problem with the economy and or the federal budget is as simple as too much government spending, then you have to point your finger squarely at the National Republican Party. Of the six recent Congresses essentially controlled by the GOP from 1995 to 2006, not one ever reduced federal outlays. The last year in which federal outlays were lower than the year before was 1965, when Democrats ran both the White House and Congress. As soon as Republicans controlled both Congress and the White House in 2001, spending really took off, with more than $100 billion added to federal outlays every year that Bush sat in the White House, considerably more than either Bill Clinton or Bush 41. Hence Bush's preoccupation with Social Security, basically the largest government expenditure. Military spending is larger these days, but it's spread over different budgets. Bush knows that's where the real money is spent, and he knows why it won't change. Presumably, Bush's upcoming memoir will offer more details, but in press accounts of his June speech, he said that it was resistance within his own party, not from Democrats, that nixed his plans to privatize Social Security. The only thing surprising about this is that Bush seems surprised about it. Incumbent Republicans love Social Security for the same reason that all incumbents do because voters love Social Security. More than three-quarters of all American adults say they want to know that Social Security will be there when they retire, even if they feel they won't need it. That's why Republicans did nothing to stop spending on Social Security, from about $433 billion in 2001 to $586 billion in fiscal year 2007. The Republicans lost control of both houses of Congress in the 2006 election. If a Republican president working with a Republican-controlled Congress couldn't stop the growth of Social Security spending, there's little reason to think it will happen any other way, Tea Party or no Tea Party. And if today's Republicans have a credible plan for trimming this budget item, or even slowing it down, they're being quiet about it. The same goes for Medicare. A strong majority of Americans opposes tinkering with Medicare, and among older Americans who are more likely to vote, opposition is 5 to 1. And so, Republicans did nothing to halt Medicare's explosion from about $217 billion in fiscal year 2001 to $372 billion in fiscal year 2007. No one thinks that, as America's population grows older, there will be any stopping the growth in these programs. And that's half the federal budget right there. Next up is defense and security, about $1 trillion a year. Maybe, just maybe, we'll get a tiny peace dividend from the end of the military mission in Iraq. But some of that will be eaten up by increased veteran benefits and services, to say nothing of Afghanistan. Both wars were started by a Republican president and supported by Republican members of Congress. Lately, Senator Tom Coburn, a Republican from Oklahoma, has made some very cogent points about wasteful military spending. But they're not much different from what John McCain said through much of the 80s and 90s, and his impact on military spending has been nil. And the fiscal year 2011 budget authority for the Department of Homeland Security, a Republican creation, is a hefty $56 billion. How much of that will Republicans cut? All of the above is spending that Republicans over the last 15 years or so either created or could have cut or slowed and never did. The relatively small portions of the federal government that the Pledge to America focuses on are almost all so-called domestic discretionary expenses, and despite Republican complaints that these expenses are ballooning, they actually got smaller as a portion of overall spending under Bush. Of course, that's not because they've shrunk, it's because of the huge rise in spending that Republicans approve for the military. Hence, when you look through the GOP proposals to cut spending, they are uniformly, laughably puny. A typical idea is to permit the government to hire only one new worker for every two who leave. Leaving aside the arbitrariness of the idea, its own proponents claim that it will save a whopping $35 billion over 10 years. They're whacking weeds at the edge of a large field where they let sacred cows get fatter. When Republicans denounce government spending then, they're talking only about government spending that they don't like. The TARP, a Republican creation, health care reform, stimulus spending, the auto industry bailout. 
But the plain fiscal fact is that the National Republican Party has been addicted to its own forms of government spending at least since the Nixon administration. The very notion of taking a pledge evokes their addiction. This time it's different, we swear. Sure, the pledge tactic could have considerable short-term political traction, especially as the economy continues its anemic growth. The Republican Party has long shown it can win elections by hollering about taxing and spending. But winning elections won't solve the longer-term problem that the GOP will face from the Tea Party's embrace, which is that unlike congressional Republicans, these people actually believe the rhetoric. Nearly half oppose tax hike for rich, read the headline of a September 16th Associated Press story about their poll about taxes. That's one way to put it, just like one could report the results of the 1988 election by saying that Michael Dukakis got nearly half of the popular vote. The more logical way of putting it would be that more than half support letting tax cuts expire for the rich, 54% as opposed to 44%. But framing it instead around the minority position lets AP focus on how Democrats might worry about, quote, provoking the 44% who say the reduction should include the wealthy, close quote, as opposed to worrying about provoking the majority who don't feel that way. And it's a majority that's particularly strong among Democratic voters, 75%, who are presumably the ones Democratic lawmakers need to be most worried about, particularly given the much-remarked drop in enthusiasm among those voters. Wall Street, money never weeps. You'd think if anybody would be out there thanking President Obama for helping them out these past few years, it would be Wall Street. Back when he was running for office, Barack Obama led the Democrats in supporting President Bush's original bailout of Wall Street. And as president, he kept that bailout going. He put into place all kinds of regulatory measures to make it easier for banks to recover and to turn a profit. And he's paid the price with some voters for that. But no, Wall Street is not happy with him. At the president's televised town hall meeting this week, hedge fund manager and CNBC commentator Anthony Scaramucci told him this to his face. I represent the Wall Street community. We have felt like a pinata. Maybe you don't feel like you're whacking us with a stick, but we certainly feel like we've been whacked with a stick. Back during the summer, uh, kind of famously, a billionaire named Stephen Schwartzman, who founded and runs a private equity firm called the Blackstone Group, went even further. At a meeting that he thought was private, Schwartzman declared that the president's proposal to raise the taxes on certain profits that his company makes from 15% to 35%, 35% being the corporate income tax that most companies pay, he said that tax change was just like Hitler invading Poland in 1939. Well, I think we all obviously agree with that view that shifting the tax structure of private equity firms is, I don't really see any difference between that and Hitler invading Poland. Adam Davidson is an NPR economics correspondent, often heard here on our program as part of the Planet Money team. Obviously, we can just just laugh at it, but but the Blackstone Group is one of the companies that has benefited the most from all the things the federal government has done over the last couple of years to strengthen Wall Street. In addition to the general bailout of the entire financial services industry, in addition, Blackstone Group directly got contracts from the Treasury Department to manage a whole host of new 
programs. This is part of the bailout they were given these contracts. It's part of the whole package of uh, financial rescue initiatives. So if you look at people alive today who have directly benefited to the tunes of tens of millions, maybe billions of dollars, you know, Stephen Schwartzman is very, very high on the list. And so how much whining and complaining are Wall Street guys doing about the federal government now? Like this guy, Stephen Schwartzman, is he an outlier? My view is he represents a much broader view, and he's one of a very few who have guts and confidence to say that. It's something I have noticed. I cover Wall Street a lot. I talk to people who work on Wall Street, high-level people, lower-level people a lot. And it's something that I have found sort of maddening. And and if I can use a odious and ridiculous comparison, it reminds me a lot of Ba'athists in Iraq. Ba'athists uh, Ba'athist being uh, Saddam Hussein's party. These are the people who made money and were in power when Saddam Hussein was running the country. Yes, and I'm talking about high-level Ba'athists that when I was in Iraq after the war, the group that I found had the most self-pity, the most, oh, how horrible my life is, nobody understands me, the world has just turned against me, were those people who had made a fortune through the evil and illegal activities of the Ba'athist regime that they were a part of. And it feels very similar when I'm talking to people on Wall Street. This self-pity combined with a total lack of self-reflection about how they had been such massive beneficiaries of a system that ended up being so bad for the country. And that continues to generate huge profits. Yeah. Pretty much every big bank that you can name, with the possible exception of maybe J.P. Morgan Chase, would not exist today. It would have failed if it wasn't for the government. They are growing quickly and making record profits, huge bonuses. Um, by some counts, uh, this year will be the biggest bonus year ever for Wall Street, and last year was bigger than any year before. So um, – so that bucket of activity, let's just call it the bailout, although it covers more than the bailout. Right. Um, most folks on Wall Street who I know feel that, well, that was just necessary. If, if we had gone down, the whole U.S. economy, the whole world economy would have gone down. We would have had a Great Depression. And I will say I'm sympathetic to that argument. That being said, it still seems to me that it would be appropriate for folks on Wall Street to – say publicly and 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 to really have inside of their souls the fact that their businesses failed and something that they have always said they're against government intervention rescued them made them get the opposite of what you're supposed to get in a capitalist economy rewarded instead of punished for bad risk management and instead you you never i i cannot think of a single thing i've heard in the media or that I have directly heard that expresses any any gratitude. And, and th- there's a few folks who I've heard self-reflection, but I'd say self-reflection is a very small, small percentage of what I hear from Wall Street. But wait, isn't there some kind of pro forma, we're very grateful to the federal government for stepping in sort of thing that big bankers have to say when they give speeches to the public? I haven't heard that. What about when they go in front of Congress? Don't they say, like, thanks, you you saved us? You know, like, we just want to acknowledge what's happened here in this partnership with the federal government, blah, blah, blah. I, I haven't watched every hearing, but I've watched a lot of them, maybe most of them. I, I can't think of a time that someone said, my bank that I run would not exist today. It failed because we took actions that led to our investors and our lenders having no faith in us. But the government stepped in, and because of that, we are making more money than we've ever made before. Now, what about if you go out and just talk to just kind of the workaday people who work on Wall Street, the analysts, the brokers, the traders, you know, just kind of the middle-level people who make a lot of money – are they whining about the Obama administration? Are they grateful for the uh, federal government and all of us taxpayers saving their asses? See, this is a perfect example. Alex Bloomberg, my my partner in Planet Money, uh, and I went out for a drink. And, and we were out. We went to a Wall Street bar, and, and there's this, like, private dining room that had been rented by a group of young guys, like, clearly Wall Street guys, you know, suits and ties. And it was like a group of furious Wall Street guys getting together to figure out what to do about their anger at the president and the Democrats in Congress. And 
One of the guys said, I swear to God, they're trying to destroy business in America. And they were discussing what should we do? How do we fight the president? How do we fight Congress? Should we get a march on Washington? Other people were saying, no, that's not going to work. And I got to say, it was a pretty emblematic moment. I'm willing to bet that you could go to just about any bar around Wall Street any night of the week, and you will find someone complaining about the president, complaining about the government, and all the different ways they are hurting Wall Street. The Onion Radio News. General Motors reports record sales of its new disposable car. This is Doyle Redland reporting. General Motors has announced a 56% increase in earnings this year, attributing much of it to February's wildly successful launch of the GMC Whim, the first-ever non-refillable disposable automobile. Debuting at a cost of $1,100 each, the vehicles are flying out of showrooms as quickly as dealers can stock them. Whim enthusiast Glenn Shriver. I recently consumed four vehicles driving from my home in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, to Daytona Beach for the first annual Whim Owners Convention. I've already collected all eight colors. Responding to the whim's success, rival automakers are preparing to counter with their own lines of disposable cars, including the Ford Temporaire and the Chrysler Dumper. The 2002 Mitsubishi Ditch will be unveiled later this year with a projected sticker price of $799. Royal Redland for the Onion Radio News. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. willing to bet that you could go to just about any bar around Wall Street any night of the week and you will find someone complaining about the president, complaining about the government and all the different ways they are hurting Wall Street. And in fact, to test this theory, just last week you went with one of our producers, Jane Feltis, to a bar down on Wall Street and you talked to just random guys who you walked up to at the bar. Yeah, exactly. It was bars called Pound and Pence. It's literally across the street from the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. Filled with guys talking about um, their options, hedging strategies, and their mm-hmm. uh, you know new software database for monitoring capital flows, and 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 you found these guys, and and you recorded conversations, and and these guys very much felt like they are the victims. They are being scapegoated by the federal government. The government must 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 have an enemy because if they don't have an enemy, they're the enemy. So. Wall Street is the current enemy, okay? So it was three guys, and it was actually kind of moving. They were having their, you know, it's right after September 11th. They all worked together in, I think it was the second tower uh, of the World Trade Centers. On September 11th, they're on the 58th floor. One guy was saying um, that he didn't want to leave the building, and the other guy told him he had to leave. So every year they have a drink. He buys his friend a drink for saving his life. They now all work for different companies, but they get together uh, around September 11th every year. Now, I've, I've listened to this tape before we, we walked into the studio, and and it's, it, and uh, we're just going to play snippets here, but it was interesting. It's interesting hearing it, how at no point 
Well, they copped to the notion that they benefited from the government's actions, even once. You think everybody that works on Wall Street has money from the bailout? Is that what you really think? I think the reason Wall Street still exists in this forum today where you're all sitting in a bar drinking beers... I, I should I'm say sorry, you guys are, are shouting, not because you're angry, but because it's just really loud. Yeah, it was a really loud bar. It was, it was packed. And we've been arguing with these guys. We've been going back and forth for quite a while at this point. So you're an institutional investor. You work for a credit rating agency. What do you do? I work in a, in a, in a, in a bank on Wall Street. All right. I can guarantee your bank would have gone under. Your stock valuation would have collapsed. Your credit rating agencies out of business. would have been out of business. You, all three of you, directly benefited from the bailout. What? You're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy, man. So what do you do? Don't bail it out? That's the question. Do you not bail it out? I don't know. Okay, so you let it tank. It's up to you. I would like to bail it out, and I would like to walk into a bar in Lower Manhattan and have one of you thank me. Thank you. I still have my job, and I appreciate it. Why do you want that? What, what? No, you guys still have your job. Because I'm a smart person. You know, and you think you really got to keep your job because you're smart? You got to keep your job because you guys got bailed out. You guys got bailed No, 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 no. That's not why I have my job. I mean, survival of the fittest. Because I'm smarter than the average person. And even if the government bails out your industry that failed, you still say it's because you're smarter. No. The government bailing out an industry was out of necessity for whatever the situation was. The fact that I benefited from that is because I'm smart. I took advantage of a situation. 95% of the population doesn't have that common sense. The only reason I've been doing this for so long is because I must be smarter than the next guy. They basically saw it as their own individual initiative is what put them where they are today. Government had nothing to do about it. Yes, I think that um, my thought is that for at least some folks on Wall Street, you have to come up with a story that explains to you why you are making so much more than other people, even if you feel you are dramatically benefiting society. And, and I think the story they come up with is that they are battling in a true free market that they are taking risky bets and they're paying the cost when those bets don't pay off and they're reaping the rewards when those bets do pay off. I don't think that can possibly be defended by a careful study of what has happened. I think it's quite the opposite. I think Wall Street firms took enormously risky bets, reaped whatever rewards there were to make, but did not have to pay the costs when those bets did not pay off. The rest of us did. And do the Wall Streeters have a legitimate beef? Like, is there something that Obama has done to them that they're right to get mad about? I think that there are two things that I see as at least somewhat legitimate. Yes. You know, one thing that I'd say, sure, they have a right to be mad about, you know, in the sense that any of us would, is they're going to make less money, probably. These reforms, these regulatory reforms are going to come into place over the next two, three years. And... We know that some of those were specifically designed to lessen profits for Wall Street banks. Uh, capital reserve requirements, the, the amount of money you have to hold on hand, we know that capital reserve requirements are going to increase, and that directly means they'll make less money. Because basically they have to hold more money on hand, so they can't either use that money as their profits or go out and invest that and make more money with. Right. There's a whole host of other things that the regulatory reform closes off uh, that that were um, avenues to profit. So, yes, I, I think definitely the it, it's almost indisputable that in the short term, regulatory re- reform will mean they will make less money than they would have otherwise. The second issue is vilification. I think if you f- if you work on Wall Street, actually, I can say I can assert this 100 percent. You, you feel vilified. And I think if you work within Wall Street, chances are you didn't work directly with subprime mortgages and collateralized debt obligations and derivatives or any of the things that got the economy in trouble or were central to the financial crisis. I'm just thinking about your comparison to the Ba'athists in Iraq. Is it just that, that these people who are in a position of such privilege will just whine more because they're just used to being on top and getting their way? Yeah, I... I I spent a lot of time in Haiti this year, and I spent a lot of time with wealthy Haitians and, and with poor Haitians. And I would say 
the wealthy Haitians definitely went out for being more crybaby-ish. You know, people don't understand us. People are getting in our way. Um, you know, the poor Haitians are, you know, literally the poorest people on earth. And and it's not that I never heard complaining, but it but it wasn't nearly as much. I'd say I had a very similar experience in Banda Aceh after the tsunami. Um, that has been my experience, that, that the rich and the powerful when there is a shock, are much more vocal and much more self-pitying than the poor. Maybe the poor are more used to these shocks. Maybe they have, you know, lower expectations about the future. But but this Wall Street stuff did not, it didn't surprise me, although it, it is disappointing. Adam Davidson of Planet Money, which is a co-production of our show and NPR News. You can find the Planet Money blog or hear their great twice-weekly podcast for absolutely free at npr.org slash money. around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere. Their tears are filling up their glasses, no expression, no expression. Hide my head, I want to drown my sorrow. No tomorrow, no tomorrow. And Newsweek economics columnist Robert Samuelson has had it with the way we discuss economics. He complained on September 18th, quote, With every election, we descend into soundbite economics. Rhetorical claims grow more partisan and self-serving. These debates confirm the dreary state of economic discourse, close quote. The right and the left are both at fault, says Samuelson, and then proceeds to endorse the conservative critique of Obama policies using partisan soundbites, like, quote, Confidence is crucial to stimulating consumer spending and business investment, and Obama constantly subverts confidence, close quote. And the deepwater drilling moratorium kills jobs. Well, Samuelson had no time to address a White House report indicating that job losses due to the moratorium were actually much fewer and will be more temporary than expected. But that left him room for more partisan sound bites, like describing Obama's plan to let the Bush tax cuts expire on the wealthiest taxpayers as his delusional approach. Samuelson even adds that the move would hurt small businesses, which is a, by now, very well-known Republican talking point that's been substantively challenged. Samuelson's conclusion is that our campaign discourse is strangely disconnected from underlying economic realities. He's right about that one. Just because Gordon Gecko is back doesn't mean greed is good again. This week we got some horrible economic news that one in seven Americans is now living below the poverty line. But I want to point you to an American who is truly suffering. Ben Stein. You know Ben Stein, the guy who got rich because when he talks it sounds so boring it's actually funny. <laughs> well, Ben wrote an article about his struggle. His struggle as a wealthy person facing the prospect of a slightly higher marginal tax rate. Ben recounted living nightmares like having to pay property tax on his four homes, even though his kids don't go to public school. <laughs> you know, Ben, instead of complaining, you should be down on your knees thanking your lucky stars you were born in a country where a useless schmuck who contributes absolutely nothing to society can somehow manage to find himself in the top marginal tax bracket. <laughs> And you're welcome to come on the show anytime. 
Now, I can hear a lot of you out there saying, come on, Bill, don't be so hard on Ben Stein. He does a lot of voiceover work, and that's not easy. <laughs> it's, it's actually very easy. Well, wasn't he an economist at the, at the Nixon White House? I'm in the middle of something. <laughs> <laughs> Your part is over. <laughs> Last week, Mayor Bloomberg of New York complained that all his Wall Street friends are very upset with mean old President Poopy Pants. Because they want to preserve the Bush tax cuts for the richest 1%. Because the rich, we're always told, are job creators. Except they're not. They're much more likely to save money through mergers and outsourcing and cheap immigrant labor and pass the unemployment along to you. Like Senate wannabe Carly Fiorini did when she was head of Hewlett-Packard. Meg Whitman, running for governor out here, started eBay and people said she's brilliant. She tapped into the zeitgeist. Yeah, the zeitgeist being the desperate need of millions of Americans to scrape a few dollars together by selling the useless crap in their garage. You know, when, when you raise taxes slightly on the wealthy, <laughs> it's a win-win. They don't feel it, and it heals the economy. We know this because we just did it. The 90s, hello, it wasn't that long ago. You were probably listening to grunge music or dabbling in witchcraft. But... Bill Clinton moved the top marginal rate from 36 to 39%. And far from tanking, the economy did so well, he had time to get his dick washed. <laughs> and, <laughs> Even 39% isn't high by historical standards. Under Eisenhower, the top tax rate was 91%. Under Nixon, it was 70. Obama just wants to kick it back to 39. And still, they go insane. Steve Forbes said that Obama, and I quote, believes people above a certain income have more than they should have, and that many probably have gotten it from ill-gotten ways. Which they have. Steve Forbes, of course, came by his fortune honestly. He inherited from his gay, egg-collecting, Elizabeth Taylor, fag-hagging father. <laughs> who inherited it from his father. But the worst whiner of all, Steve Schwartzman, currently number 69 on Forbes' list of richest Americans, compared Obama's tax plan to when Hitler invaded Poland. Wow. If Obama were Hitler, Mr. Schwartzman, I imagine tax rates would be the least of your worries. Hey, David Pakman here, host of the nationally syndicated Midweek Politics with David Pakman. If you're anything like me, you're a regular listener to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I want to invite you to check out my show, Midweek Politics with David Pakman. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists you've ever seen. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out midweekpolitics.com, check out my show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of the Midweek Politics Politics membership program. With the final session of Congress before Election Day coming down to the wire now, Democrats are still torn between whether to force Republicans to vote now in defense of tax cuts for the rich or to duck a vote on extending the Bush tax cuts and let Republicans campaign against them for letting all taxes rise. If it seems like a no-brainer, our fifth story tonight should remove all doubt. A countdown special report, the reality behind the Republican argument made by House Republican leader John Boehner and others that tax cuts for the rich 
are simply tax cuts for small businesses whose owners report their business earnings on their individual personal income tax returns. House Democrats have pushed back that some of those supposedly small businesses are actually big businesses. And after the White House identified the right-wing billionaire Koch brothers as being among those ranks, Bill Kristol's right-wing magazine, The Weekly Standard, fired back, suggesting the White House had improperly looked at the Koch brothers' tax returns. In fact, their tax status was already public information. But as Countdown discovered, with the help of Pulitzer Prize-winning tax reporter David K. Johnston, who joins us presently, the Koch brothers are just the tip of a half-trillion-dollar iceberg. A variety of sources, including court documents, confirm that when Republicans talk about the small businesses they're trying to help with their tax cut, they're actually talking about some of the biggest companies in the world and some of the richest people in this country. Mr. Boehner admitting this summer that his tax cuts only benefit 3% of so-called small businesses. So how small can that top 3% be when it accounts for half of all small business income? Only 3% of those small business people, you keep talking about all the small business people that are going to get taxed, only 3% uh, would, would be affected by that. Or, or, or do you quarrel with that figure? Is that a right figure or a wrong figure? Well, it may be 3%, but it's half of small business income. Uh, because uh, obviously the top 3% uh, have half of the, the gross income uh, for those companies that we would term small businesses. So how do they decide which companies they would term small businesses? H&R Block told Politico it has one and one half million small business clients, but extending the Bush tax cuts for the rich would benefit fewer than one half of one percent of them. According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, fewer than 750,000 people, one quarter of one percent of the country, would be affected by the top rate. So how small can this top 3% of small businesses be if they make half the small business money? And, and, and let's remember the context back then. Dave Camp knows he is the ranking Republican member on the House Ways and Means Committee. To him, the definition of small business is a footnote, literally. According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, 94% of all U.S. businesses in 2007 were S-corporations, partnerships, or sole proprietorships pass through business types commonly used by small businesses. They call them pass-through companies because they file no taxes, passing through profits to the owners who report them on their individual tax returns instead. In short, they are considered small, not because they have a small payroll, but because they have a small number of owners. It's not the income that's small. It's not the number of employees that's small. It's just the total number of owners that's small. In the case of S-Corps, up to 100 owners. My colleagues and I have been listening. When politicians talk about small businesses, they are including any company that pays taxes as a pass-through. House Democrats last week identified three limited partnerships that file as pass-throughs. A pipeline company called Enterprise, the Wall Street firm Kohlberg, Kravis & Roberts, and the accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers. The Koch brothers' own website lists partnership after partnership after partnership that make up a small business empire of 70,000 employees. According to the Washington Post, more than one million people who reported at least 200,000 in income in 2008 were partnerships and S-Corps. The richer you are, the more likely you are to call yourself a small business that way. 89% of Americans who make more than 10 million a year filed as a partnership or as an S-Corp. In 2008, more than half a million of these supposed small businesses had more than a million in assets. In 2005, almost 20,000 of them had annual receipts of more than $50 million. But if you want to know which companies these are, you are out of luck because individual tax filings are not public record. Still, some have revealed themselves. The S-Corp Association lobbying group is chaired by an executive of the Hillman Company, a small business founded by a billionaire. 
The S-Corp Group president is from Venn Strategies, a small business whose chief operating officer is a former special assistant to President Bush, whose president used to work for Senate Leader Reid. Directors of the S-Corp Group come from Farrell Gas, which provides propane and propane accessories with a small business touch to one million customers a small business. Coors Tech, North America's largest maker of technical ceramics, a small business founded by Adolf Coors, a small business. The Dead River Company, a small business with 1,200 employees, half a billion in annual revenue, and commercial real estate valued at $300 million, a small business. And a small business called McElhaney. The McElhaney family selling their Tabasco brand pepper sauce out of their kitchen to 160 countries. A small business. The Boston Globe revealed in 2007 that Fidelity Investments was becoming an S-Corp, a move that saved this small business hundreds of millions of dollars. Similar to how a scrappy little newspaper called the Tribune, as in the Chicago Tribune, made an extra $1.9 billion by converting to S-Corp status in 2008. As tax reporter David K. Johnston figured out, other companies get revealed as S-Corps when their filings become evidence in tax trials. That's how he identified one of the biggest small businesses in the world. Bechtel, a small business that builds airports, seaports, railroads, oil refineries, nuclear power plants. But back when it was just ye old Bechtel shoppy, they built the Hoover Dam. And today, 49,000 employees, $31 billion in revenue, the world's number one engineering and construction firm, a small business. Companies aside, who are the actual people who would benefit from the Republican tax cut for the richest small businesses? Him, for one. Bloomberg News reports the president and other big authors and actors and celebrities, even hedge fund managers, file as S-Corps to save on taxes. Nor is Mr. Obama the only famous S-Corp owner. Recognize this guy? How about now? Thanks to court documents reviewed by Countdown, we know one of Texas's two richest men in the 1990s became an S-Corp back in 1991. Senator John McCain knows about S-Corps. Small businesses are the job generator of America. Mrs. John McCain filed as an S-Corp back in 2006, a small business owner who owns a massive beer distributorship and reported income of more than $6 million. And then there's small businessman Philip Anschutz, a small businessman who gave 30000 to the Senate Republican Campaign Committee last year and 15000 to the House, on top of his family's more than half a million to Republicans overall. Mr. Anschutz owns at least a part of more than 100 small businesses. Small railroads, small oil companies, small sports stadiums, small arenas, a small national movie theater chain, a small half of small major league small soccer, the LA Kings, the LA Lakers. His small business entertainment company likes to clean out the old garage now and again to put on small shows by Bette Midler and share. Mr. Anschutz even owns small newspapers, including the Weekly Standard. Countdown has even identified one S-Corp owner whose reclusive founder and chairman actually works out of these very NBC headquarters in New York. Hi. Technically, I'm a small business. He decided to live his life shallow, cash in his love for material, and it's gone. Gone, going, gone, everything gone, give a damn. Gone be the birds when they don't want to sing. Gone people, awkward with their things gone. I start tonight with the economy. The president and the Democrats are in trouble. President Obama went to Ohio today to try to sell voters that the economy's his top priority. 
I intend to keep fighting as hard as I can, as long as it takes, to make sure that this economy is working for every single American. Anybody who wants a job got to be able to go out there and get one, and we're not going to be done until we get that, get that result. But the new polls out are dire. The president's approval rating on how he's handled the economy is down to an all-time low of 41 percent. Democrats are also losing to the Republicans in generic congressional matchups, 49 to 45 percent. The Democrats are losing because the economy has not recovered as well as people had hoped. The jobs have not come back. So what went wrong? How can they fix their political problem, but much more importantly, how can they fix our economy so that we as a country can get back to work? Well, here's the problem. They forgot how about how their policies affect the average man in the country. They, along with the Republicans who started TARP, made a fundamental error. They confused Wall Street's interests with Main Street's interests. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's so true here. They forgot that eventually this was supposed to help a guy like, I don't know, who do we pick? Somebody in the audience. The Bob in Iowa. Okay? When the economic collapse first started, the original idea was that the financial industry was in trouble, and if we didn't fix it, the economy wouldn't recover. Well, that makes sense, but at some point, they forgot the ultimate goal, which was economic recovery for all of us. Instead, billions went into TARP, and trillions more went into indirect funding of the largest banks in the country. But no one stayed on the beat to make sure they actually lent that money out so that businesses can invest and hire more people like Bob or you. So the bankers took the money and went back to gambling because they make more money doing that than lending out to small businesses. Now that's eventually going to lead to a second crash. But more importantly for now, that meant that the small business in the country couldn't hire you for new projects. The people in DC and New York didn't recognize this because they live in a bubble. Inside that bubble, their incomes are still going way up. Over the last three decades, the top 1% of this country had their income rise by 281%. They don't feel your pain. So until the election started to roll around, the politicians didn't even get to that the recovery plan isn't working. So having realized this, the administration recently decided to give out $30 billion to local community banks so they can loan out to small businesses. The Republicans had pushed for this earlier, so that's great. We all agree. Okay, let's shake on it. Well, that would have gotten us on the right road, except the Republicans flip-flopped and voted no to kill the bill. Now why in the world did they do that? Why filibuster a bill you claimed to support earlier? And that helps small businesses you claim you care so much about. The answer? Politics. They figured that their best course to get reelected is to obstruct everything the president proposes. Hope that the economy does not recover and then blame the president for it. Honestly, that's sick. But there's plenty of blame to go around here. Both the Obama and Bush administrations chose to support the big banks over you. The Republicans have been in the corner of the big banks on every single proposal. I've been watching it like a hawk. They never wavered every time they voted with the banks. Now they kill bills to help small businesses while pretending to be champions of them. So what's the answer? I think the Democrats need to do a mea culpa and say, look, we followed the Bush strategy of giving to the banks and hoping it trickled down to you. Well, that did not work. We've learned our lesson. If we give any more money out, it'll be directly to small businesses to hire Americans for projects that go to rebuilding this country. And if the Republicans stand in our way, may God help them, because we're coming for them. And from now on, we're not taking no for an answer. Michael from Glen Burnie. Uh, just wanted to comment on the religious part of your last episode. Uh, I'm, I myself would consider myself an atheist or agnostic, whatever is the appropriate term to use. But uh, uh, and I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. I don't see what point there is in going out and and finding religious-based liberals 
podcasts or whatnot to uh, you know to clip for your show. But at the same time, I do think it raises an interesting point in that pretty much anything you're going to have on there is going to be showing religious people as conservative, right wing, and narrow minded. And while that's not necessarily entirely inaccurate from you know from the reports that you that you clip on there. I do think that it may paint the religious people with too broad of a brush, uh, and you know, not intentionally, not on purpose, but I do think it's an unfortunate side effect. Um, so I would agree, maybe there is something that could be done to counteract that. Though I, I'll admit, I don't know what. <laughs> so just my two cents. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Matt Saxe. I'm from uh, Eagle Pass, Texas. As a former Republican and conservative, I uh, love the work that you're doing. Uh, I look back on my old days and I shake my head and I'm pretty embarrassed. So keep up the good work. Uh, we love listening to you and uh, keep going. Hello, I'm Ryan Berkman from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I love your podcast and wish there were more like them. I'm calling to respond to your comments to the Presbyterian minister from Illinois. I was hesitant about calling you, but I have to say that I feel like you didn't completely get his point. You said that you would not advocate for religion, but he wasn't asking you to. He was asking you to state the truth. The fact is that the worst thing the mainstream corporate media does to the left is to not not to necessarily to bash us, though they do plenty of that. The worst thing that they do is omit our message entirely. That's why most people don't understand that 70% of Americans want Congress to pass a public option measure and the bill is slowly dying in the Senate. They just don't cover it and people don't know that that is fact. The same way the Christian left is omitted from existence because the only time people talk about Christians is when they are holding that God hates fake signs and burning Korans. They rarely mention many of us are Christian leftists fighting for the very economic justice that leftists and Jesus preached. So I think that you are, we are just hoping that we could get more balanced treatment from the leftist media. And when you talk about the religious right, perhaps you could just mention that we exist and that maybe the right-wingers have it all wrong. I mean, a simple survey of economic and, and social justice in the Bible will tell you that it is really easy to be a leftist if you're a Christian. I wasn't offended, by the way, but this is an advocacy of religion. And it's just advocacy that not all religion is right-wing. Keep up the good works. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to everyone who called into the phone line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action, the number to dial yourself is 206-202-3410. And uh, feel free to keep uh, the comments coming on the topic of the religion debate if you feel so inclined. There's already at least one other clip, uh, you know, one other comment that's in the queue, so you'll be hearing that on the religion debate. But, of course, the line is completely open. You can leave comments about whatever you like in response to anything you like or in response to nothing at all. Now, it's uh, still close to the beginning of the month, which means, uh, as I do every month, I ask you guys to go over to Podcast Alley and vote for the progressive shows there in the top ten list. Best of the Left, The Young Turks, and Blast the Rider, three progressive shows that uh, that all you know manage to usually get into the top ten list each month. And we can only do that because of you guys. And when you do that, it actually helps these shows get more listeners, spread the word of uh, progressivism the way we see it, and uh, and it's really helpful. So taking the you know one or two minutes out of your day to do that is uh, really helpful. Very much appreciated. And now I want to thank a couple of people who have helped this show in particular tremendously. A couple of uh, members, Jesse C. signed up for a yearly membership starting back on June 21st. Thank you, Jesse. And Becky D. signed up uh, for a, a monthly recurring membership just on uh, September 7th. And uh, and Becky went ahead and went a little bit above the you know regular membership level just to help out the show a little bit more. So thank you very much to Becky and Jesse and all the members and donors who make this show possible. Of course, members not only get to go to bed with a warm, fuzzy feeling knowing they're helping to keep this show alive, they also receive bonus content, including the uh, audio content that goes into the show, 
video content, all the clips that go into the show but are originally from video sources. You actually get the video version of it if you'd like to check those out. And then bonus content, which includes both audio and video, stuff that I find you know, doing my research that I think is great. I pick it out and then it just doesn't make it into the show. It gets cut for time uh, or you know, for whatever variety of reasons. It just doesn't make it into the show. Members get all of that bonus content and uh, and those three sections, uh, you know, audio, video, and bonus get uh, fed to you in three separate uh, organized bonus feeds so that you can subscribe to those and never run out of stuff to listen to or watch. Of course, if you're looking to support the show but you don't have the money to be a member, no problem. Just keep telling your friends about it. Spread the word. Get the word out online. Send emails. All that sort of thing. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell Randy Gonzalez. Word of mouth makes a huge, huge difference. So thank you very much to anyone who who takes the time to do that. Of course, you can stay connected to the show yourself. And a great way to spread the word is by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. To get details about the show, also online, of course, links to sources and music used in this and every episode are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought